Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Strange World, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. Disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney Plus, so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I have gadgets and gizmos aplenty, and who's-its and what's-its galore, I'm not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, this week I'm a magnificent horse, with the brain of a bird, as we watch through 61 films and counting. Thankfully, I'm joined by a real hero of animation academia, a guy whose wisdom, wisecracks, and unwavering knowledge of cartoon minutia was seemingly gifted by the gods themselves. He's mangled the Minotaur. He's grappled with the Gorgon. The crowd goes wild for Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam, how are you? I'm, I'm good, yeah. The intros just get more and more bombastic. <laughs> harder to live up to. As do you, my friend. As do you. <laughs> the bombastic Dr. Sam Summers. They call me Dr. Bombastic. <laughs> As Shaggy once almost said. Yes, I'm great. I'm excited. This is a serious Disney movie for me. This is like... I don't know if it's in my top five favourites, but it's like definitely top five most important in my life. So Wow. It's a big deal. I'm quite, you know, we've had an amazing run of guests on these recent episodes, mostly just because we always ask the guests what they want to do and, and, and it's all lined up. Everyone wants to do these early Renaissance films. But I, I'm quite glad that we're doing this just us two because I have a lot to say about Hercules. <laughs> Oh, Sam, this is going to be a really interesting episode. I cannot wait to hear all your love for this film. So was this a big one for you as a kid? You say this is one of the most important Disney films in your life. Yeah, this is the movie for me as a kid. It's up there with Lion King, Jungle Book as the ones that I watched the most, but it was the first one that I saw in a cinema. I saw Toy Story, but this was the first Disney proper movie that I saw in a cinema. And... Yeah, it, I was just absolutely gripped by it. There's just something about it that, even though I love things like The Lion King when I was watching them on VHS, nothing quite had a mood like Hercules. Nothing had a tone like Hercules. It's fun, it's silly, it's action-packed. So this was massive for me. I had every single action figure of every single character. I had a, a giant Hydra where it had the big head and then you could take the big head off and it had three smaller heads underneath. I mean, no. come on. That is so cool. That's amazing. Yep, yep, yep. So it was a massive movie for me when I was little. Yeah, one of the ones that I watched the most. And then became an important movie for me in my career as well because I wrote my undergraduate dissertation on this. So this was like my first ever 
bit of animation studies was was analysing Hercules for that dissertation and that kind of led directly into what I decided to do on my doctorate which was obviously write about DreamWorks and Shrek a series of movies which in a way pick up the baton from Hercules in terms of all the anachronistic and the textual stuff that that brought to mainstream feature animation. Uh, I've published work on it. I'm actually balancing my microphone now on the closest giant book that I had to hand which is a huge book of essays about adaptations of Hercules in which my writing on this film is published. Amazing. That is a flex worthy of Hercules himself. That's incredible. <laughs> Can I tell you my history with Hercules? Cause Go on. This is one that I barely saw. I think I saw it in the cinema when it came out, but as I maybe mentioned before, Pocahontas was the last film we had on VHS, so that was like where my Disney journey as a kid kind of stopped. We basically hopped over to Pixar from there. But this is my Hercules story, right? Did you used to go to pantomimes as a kid? Did you go and see a pantomime at Christmas? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, you didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, how droll. So, when I was a kid, we went to pantomimes all the time. And you know there's the bit at the end of the pantomime where they pick a load of kids from the audience and they get to go up on stage and you sing a song with the pantomime cast and all the audience sings along and as you leave, you get given a goodie bag. I was one of those kids. The year that Hercules came out, I think the pantomime might have been Aladdin, fittingly. And yeah, I was selected to go up on stage. I think I sang a song with a panda or something. (laughs) Tiny, tiny me. I was maybe, what, like six or seven when this film came out and got given a goodie bag at the end. And it had a mask, like a paper mask of either pain or panic. Still don't know which is which. I think it was the big red guy. Which one's that, Sam? Well, neither of them are red. (laughs) One of them's round and purple and one of them's pointy and blue. Purple, red, I'm going to say red. The purple guy. Pain, okay. I, I got a paper mask of pain. Just that whole experience just like set my whole brain on fire uh, as a kid. And that is my connection to Hercules, that I got given this paper mask at the pantomime when I got to go on stage and sing a song with a panda. So Well, that that is really cool. That is a great story. I believe I've read somewhere, I was trying to track this down, this might be misinformation, I think I read somewhere ages ago that panic is the most painful mask to wear for Disney cast members at the parks. That is unverifiable. I've definitely read that somewhere, but I couldn't I couldn't find the info. I couldn't find the details this time around. But it's lucky that you've got a, a pin mask because apparently the panic mask is a doozy. So pointy, too pointy. Yeah. But the thing that's going to be interesting, Sam, and I feel like I have to let you know this early on, I cannot wait to get into this film with you, but watching it again now, this might as well have been my first time really properly watching this film. And I'm just going to let you know up front, I did not love this movie, and I think it's going to make for a very interesting episode, and I am desperately going to try not to harsh your buzz. I'm all about the Dr. Sam Summers bombastic buzz. I will not harsh it, but I've just got to let you know early on, because we haven't spoken about this yet, I didn't love this movie in the way that I kind of wished that I might have done. I, so, I got that sense in our, in our WhatsApps. You were very brief. Usually, like with, with Hunchback, for example, you were like, oh my God, this is amazing. With this one, you were very brief in your responses. And I was thinking, 
I don't think this guy likes this movie. I was almost <laughs> hoping that he didn't like this movie because right. I don't think... Like, this is not one of those movie podcasts where two guys argue about movies, right? That's yep. like a lot of media podcasts in general. Like, the two guys kind of natter on at each other. They snipe at each other. They try and convince each other. And that's never really been us. Like, we, we've not 100% agreed on everything, but even when we slightly disagree, just for the benefit of the listeners, I don't think I've ever had any kind of argument of any kind with Ben Travis. <laughs> like, it's, I can't imagine myself arguing with Ben Travis. I don't know why I ever would want to. When we both saw Rise of Skywalker for the first time, we were doing that debrief. I was just like, I'm going to let him roll. I don't, yeah. I don't mind. I'm not picking this apart. Who would want to do that? It's Ben Travis. <laughs> so that's never been what this podcast is, but maybe today's the day. This is the first movie we've seriously disagreed on. Yeah, and listeners, you're going to hear our very first argument. <laughs> Here it goes. <laughs> no, already from what you've said, I feel like we're going to be coming at this film and understanding the things that it's doing in a very similar way, but just having opposed reactions to it, or coming at it from a very different place. So that's enough from us. We're all set. I'm scared. I'm scared, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> it's enough from us. We're all set down. The register's complete. And it's time for the battle. To, sorry, for class to begin. <laughs> this time we're getting a whistle-stop tour through the pantheon of Greek gods as Disney tackles the deities in 1997's Hercules. Hercules. I'm going to have to restrain myself from doing that every single time we mention his name. Come on then, Sam, as the Hercules mega fan, let's get the listeners going, build us up with the plot of Hercules for people who haven't seen us. Give us the whistle-stop tour. Oh, I will. I'm, I'm the Hercules mega fan. That's a character from the movie. <sighs> See what you did there? So, <laughs> Hercules is born Hercules. to Zeus. <laughs> Christ. Sorry. Now, for me, mm. for me now, that's being replaced by the song Smoking Out the Window by Silk Sonic, where they go, Just the other night she was gripping on me tight, screaming, Hercules, Hercules, Hercules. <laughs> so that's what's been in my head ever since I've been researching this episode. Of anyway, Hercules is born to Zeus and Hera, king and queen of the gods. But when Zeus's brother Hades sets his sights on the throne, he enacts a plot which finds baby Herc trapped on Earth and stripped of his godhood, all except for his superhuman strength. When he comes of age and discovers his destiny, Hercules must prove himself worthy of joining the gods on Olympus and stop Hades' plans in the process. Very smoothly done. I resisted from coming back in with a Hercules, Hercules. Now you've got that in my head as well. Okay, so that is where we're at. We're taking a Greek myth and I don't know much about Greek gods. Are you a Greek god guy? Do you know much about the uh, story here? I mean, if you've written this academic paper, you, you've got to know your stuff. I am a massive Greek god guy and that's because of this movie. 100%. Like, it, it really set... When I was a little kid, I think I was five or six when this movie came out, so I was pretty young, it really sent me down the route of, like, horrible histories and all of that kind of thing, kids' versions of Greek myths. And what was so fascinating about it was learning all the discrepancies, learning all the many ways in which the Disney film deviates from the myth because it is completely different from the myth. We'll get into it in, in plenty detail and discarded, but this is nothing like 
any version of Hercules that's been told before. And of course, Hercules itself, like all Greek myths, or Heracles, actually, as we should be calling it, step one, the original Greek name of the character is Heracles, but Hercules... Hercules does sound a bit better, and it's it probably the name, well, it's definitely the name under which that character is most well-known today, so they went with Hercules, but all of the other characters' names are taken from their Greek counterparts, possibly because that would mean that we then had a villain called Pluto in a Disney film, which right. is the Roman name for Hades, so we probably couldn't do that, and be very confusing for the Disney <laughs> merchandise people. So... God, I got off track there already, just going off down the Herc train. Well, this is the thing, it makes so much sense. We're going to get back to where we should be in a second, but one thing that I've learned about you, Sam, in the decade at least that we've been friends now, is that you love extraneous lore. Everything we talk about, the lore of Disney, the lore of the Lion Guard, as you talked about the other week, the lore of Lego Bionicle, the lore... Of Transformers and Beast Wars and all of this stuff. You just love lore. And I think in the lore of Sam Summers, we have discovered where this love of lore comes from. And it comes from Hercules. This is it. This might be it. Because, yeah, so the Heracles myths, like all Greek myths, don't have, like, one original version. They are stories that have been transmitted orally or through theatre or through spoken poetry and, and eventually written down often by people many years later collecting the versions they've been able to find of those stories. We'll have the pottery to go off and things like that, but there's no original written canonical Hercules, which is different from any of the other stories that Disney have adapted so far. So it was really fascinating for me when I was a kid to read about Greek myths spinning off from this movie Hercules and find out like there are characters in this movie, like Pegasus, for example, who originally had nothing to do with Hercules, who have been incorporated into this movie simply because they are popular components of Greek myth in the public consciousness. And there's all sorts of crazy and gruesome stuff that they completely omitted. So it was really interesting to find out what was different and then spin off from that and read everything that I could about all of these other heroes of Greek mythology. We'll talk about the Hercules TV show as well, but that adapted lots of different Greek myths that aren't incorporated into the film. So yeah, I am a Greek myth guy. I'm not 100% the expert. If we do have any full-on experts listening to this, I might get a couple of things wrong, but I do have a, a really good work and knowledge of that. Well, once again, you are the perfect person for this podcast, for this particular episode. And so let's get into the Disney side of things. This is the return of John Musker and Ron Clements, the legendary directors who already in this era, or well, just preceding this era, they did The Great Mouse Detective, then they directed The Little Mermaid, then Aladdin, now this. There was a five-year gap between Aladdin in 92 and Hercules in 97. So what were they up to in that time? When did this become their post-Aladdin movie? Well, they were spending all of their time working very, very hard on their post-Aladdin movie, which they thought was going to be Treasure Planet. A familiar name? A familiar name. And that is a movie that was the first idea that they pitched to Katzenberg and Eisner way back in 1985, and that was the meeting that resulted in Oliver and Company and eventually The Little Mermaid. So they'd been holding on to this idea of Treasure Planet for a very long time, and they'd made 
a few massive hits for the studio with Mermaid and Aladdin, and they thought, now it is time we have earned the right to produce this quite kooky idea of Treasure Island set in space. And despite the huge success of Aladdin, the record-breaking success of Aladdin, Katzenberg told them that they had to make one more hit before they were allowed to do Treasure Planet. They made a deal with the devil, much as Hercules does on several occasions (laughs) during the film, and they had to make one more movie that they would pick from the pool of films that were in early development based on, on pictures put forward by animators. So it's a pool of pitches, and the pitches are all swimming around in a circle going, ooh, ooh, ooh in a big green swirl? That's that's what I'm <laughs> Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And Got just it. imagine that, but most of them are probably adaptations of classic stories, but with animals, because that's what we've learned. <laughs> I don't have any specific examples that we haven't already touched on, but most of the unproduced Disney scripts are in that genre. So they went with Hercules in part because they wanted to tell a story that they could take liberties with and because Hercules' story isn't set in stone and it's not as well known as something like the Odyssey. Like everyone knows about Hercules, you might have heard of the 12 labours of Hercules but you probably couldn't tell me step by step what this guy does whereas something like the Odyssey or other pictures that were in that pile, things like Don Quixote, are more well known and more canonical in and of themselves. So they wanted room to play, and play they did with Hercules. And they also were big fans of comic books and said they wanted to tell a superhero story. And Hercules they described as the first superhero. And I've got a lot to say about the way that superhero media has influenced this version of that story. Yeah, there is tons to talk about on the the Superman analogy in particular. I'm sure we'll come to that in time. But something that came up with the Hunchback episode that we did was that that was a rare occurrence of Disney approaching religion, of having an outwardly kind of religious story where the context and the setting is very much around that. And obviously Hercules is very different. It's talking about an ancient pantheon of gods. But Disney doesn't do gods very often. Was there any kind of conflict there at the studio? Was there any worries about doing like a religious-tinged story in this way? Mm, It's an interesting question because Disney have adapted Greek myth on a smaller scale in the past. So there's the pastoral symphony section of Fantasia where we meet all of the centaurs and, and the pegasuses and we meet Zeus in that and we meet Dionysus in that, the god of wine and partying. Sweet, my guy. Yep. And and, and prior to that, one of the major kind of historically significant silly symphonies is an adaptation of the story of Persephone called The Goddess of Spring. And and that, do you know Persephone at all? Not really. I know the name, but yeah, I'm not a Greek gods guy. Okay. I will follow where you lead me. Persephone was the daughter of Ceres or Demeter, who was the goddess of nature, basically. And she was kidnapped by Hades to be his wife and we get the seasons because Persephone spends half the year with Hades and that's when Demeter is sad and everything is cold and she rejoins her mother for six months and that's where we get the summer because she's happy. So Disney adapted that story and that is an important film because it's the first Disney film to use realistic human characters as the leads and that's a stepping stone towards the aesthetic of Snow White. And it's interesting that you bring up the relationship or perhaps the conflict between Greek myth and Christianity because what they do in that movie is their version of Hades is heavily inspired by the Christian devil. 
Like, he looks like exactly what you would picture a Disney version of the devil to look like. And that seems to be their solution, right? We will adapt Greek myth, but almost in order to make it easy for contemporary Christian audiences to understand these stories, we will really build on any analogues that we find between Greek myth and Christianity. So we get that a bit in this movie, right? Like the version of Mount Olympus that we see is very inspired by typical depictions of the Christian heaven, big golden gates, clouds, everything like that. And the version of the underworld, and especially Hades, is influenced by Christianity as well. So even just the fact of Hades being a deal maker and that being one of his main ploys, is, is making twisted deals with people, that's from Christianity. That's from stories like Faustus and things like that. What about the flaminess? He's down in exactly. the underworld with flames all around him. Yeah, I mean, there will be earlier versions of Hades that have attempted to do the same thing and, and have a flame motif, but I don't think there's any association between Hades and fire in the classical mythology. That's another thing that's been added by modern Christian artists to draw parallels between him and the devil because the Christian version of hell is all fiery. Yeah, he's not the god of fire, he's the god of the dead, but the two are conflated because of what the Christian version of the underworld is like. I mean, while we're talking about what these characters look like in this film, I mean, that's a huge thing in Hercules. This feels like it has an entirely new animation style to such an extent that I wanted to bring that into this section of the show rather than the discussion of the film itself because everything's bendy and wavy and curly, ears... And weirdly, there's a lot of nipples in this film. They're all spirals, Sam. There's a lot of spirally nipples, spirally ears, wavy shapes, a lot of jagged shapes as well. Humans who have exaggerated kind of cone-shaped noses and faces. Very angular, but very bendy at the same time. It's a strange look to this film. Where did that come from? Where did that develop within the Disney system? Well, partly... There's a influence of like the art that you find on Greek pottery, which at some points is very literal, is very direct. The muses often appear in the form of paintings on pots, for example. But in general, this is a much more overtly flat art style than the previous films, which tend to try and conjure the illusion of three dimensions in their 2D characters. And line is emphasised here as well, and that comes from the influence of Greek pottery, but specifically a new artist from outside of the studio, an iconoclastic artist, a guy called Gerald Scarf, who was a British cartoonist and caricaturist, was recruited to basically be the concept artist for this film, to design the looks of all the characters. And Gerald Scarf is probably best known as the guy who's responsible for the, the visual style of Pink Floyd's The Wall, Right. So the, the film and the animations and the music videos of that era of Pink Floyd, that, that's all from Gerald Scarf. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, it struck me that it looked really different. And we've spoken in the past about how, say, Mary Blair's concept art is incredible. And you feel elements of that coming through in films like Cinderella, but it, the films don't look like the concept art looks overall. Whereas, is this a closer blend then from what the concept art was to kind of bringing that to the film itself? It is closer. So, Scarf has this really distinctive style that's rooted in bold, continuous calligraphic lines. 
And he's known for these caricatures of celebrities and politicians which are extreme and often quite, like, gnarly and cruel. Even when he draws the Beatles, who he's presumably a fan of, they do not come off well in those drawings. So as a result of that, it's probably the villains here whose final appearances most closely resemble his art. So Hades, Pain and Panic, a lot of the monsters, the fates, they are very close, almost identical to the Scarf illustrations. And he was never quite happy, I don't think, with where Hercules ended up. He's a little bit too cute and, and heroic looking, maybe, for Scarf. But he did work very closely with the animators all the way throughout the process, because you can imagine a version of this relationship where they took what Scarf drew and they went off and did their own thing. And that's happened with a lot of outside artists that they've worked with in the past. But here, he was involved in every step of the production, supervising the animators. So you really do get his sensibility and to an extent his designs coming through. And he, he made a point of putting as much care into design and background characters as he did with the leads. And I think that really comes across. Like when you see the extras in the Thebes scenes, they are all gnarly little freaks. <laughs> Every single one of them has a completely different design, a completely different personality that comes through. And when you compare that to the weird generic robots in the background of Hunchback of Notre Dame, it's night and day. Like I love what's going on with all of these characters, but especially with the background freaks. TDLFs everywhere. No wonder you love this movie. Uh, now, just before we get into discussing the film itself, we, of course, have to mention, once again, the legendary Alan Menken, who is back, 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 back at it again on musical duties with a very different score, a very different musical sensibility in this film. Uh, but he's got a different co-writing partner in Lyricist this time. This is not a Stephen Schwartz joint He's dig, dig, diggity, dig, dug himself a hole out of Disney. I don't know where Stephen Schwartz has gone or if he'll be back. But who is writing the songs with Alan Menken this time? Yes, well, well, I do know where Stephen Schwartz has gone, and we will probably talk about that in our next episode. I'm going to save Ooh. that tidbit, because that's, that's more of a Mulan story than a Hercules story, but it is very much a story. Um, so Mankin wrote the songs here with the lyricist David Zippel, who wrote musicals, uh, The City of Angels, The Goodbye Girl. He was like a, a, another Broadway guy. And he went on to write the lyrics for Mulan as well. But again, talk about that next time. David Zippel, he is, you know, he's quite a nifty lyricist. There's some fun little bits of wordplay and alliteration and stuff in this. And that perfect package, Packed a Pair of Pretty Pecs, might be my favourite in the film. <laughs> Yeah, he's, he, he knows what he's doing. And my God, the range on Alan Menken, this and Hunchback of Notre Dame back to back, that is unparalleled in terms of the different styles that are at play. Yeah, it's an absolutely crazy turnaround. I knew it wasn't Stephen Schwartz when in the opening number we had the line, rhyming lightning bolt with locked those suckers in a vault. I was like, that's not Stephen Schwartz. I can tell. <laughs> yeah, Schwartz isn't writing suckers, is he? <laughs> Well, should we go from zero to hero? Should we go the distance and talk Hercules in depth and try and stay friends along the way? <laughs> okay, let's do that. We've got it. Don't worry. We'll make it. Now, Hercules begins in the sense that I imagine this movie could have been made. I imagine there was a Disney version or could have been a Disney version of Hercules where we're going through all of this Greek paraphernalia, some kind of museum or stash of 
ancient Greek stuff, zoning in on an urn with Hercules fighting a lion and having a relatively straight up telling of this story with a big booming voiceover, I think maybe decades ago, that is what the Disney version of this story would have been. And very quickly, this film punctures that vibe completely. It tells the audience straight away, hang on, nope, that is not the movie you're going to be watching. You're going to be watching something that is sprightly and fun, that is going to talk directly to the audience, that is going to subvert your expectations, crash in the muses, let's have a party. That is the vibe straight away. And I appreciate that. Do you know who did the big boom in voiceover? No, who was that? Well, it's a perfect encapsulation of this contrast that you're talking about and the fact that this is a movie where Disney are trying to create meaning through intertextuality in a really overt way. So this was performed by Charlton Heston, who Uh, is synonymous with the historical epic in Hollywood, right? Or was during a certain era. Um, So we've got this huge star in for like three lines (laughs) of dialogue. One of which he almost refused to say. He did not want to read the words, you go girl. Really? Charlton, come on. He thought it was a mistake. <laughs> Apparently he was like, I don't think this is grammatically correct. I think I think someone's got this wrong. He wanted to say something like, take it away, young lady. <laughs> okay, so he wasn't against the idea. He was just like... <laughs> You're just asking me to say words. I feel like if Charlton Heston was around to learn TikTok vocabulary, it would blow his mind. If Charlton Heston had to say, it's giving Greek urn, he would just be like, (laughs) what is this collection of words? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was too old to get to grips with hip vernacular like, you go girl. (laughs) You maniacs! what he did he (laughs) fell to his knees screaming to the sky yeah so we do we go straight from this epic mode charlton heston narration into the muses into what the tone of this movie is going to be it's going to be pop it's going to be hip and and again when we're talking pop and hip with disney we are talking the musical stylings of three decades ago (laughs) (laughs) like in the same way that their version of hip in the 1970s was jazz music here it's like motown and gospel but that's fine it's different it's a different flavor i'm happy with that and it's really fun. I mean, the whole entrance of the muses, the lighting up dude and getting straight into this, yeah, jazzy gospel banger, the gospel truth, to give it its name. Such a fun song. I really appreciate this influx of energy straight from the beginning. Uh, and I love the muses as well. I think we'll talk about the muses a bit more as we go into the songs more in depth. But, I mean, they have a role to play in this story as well. They are, as they say, the goddesses of the arts, proclaimer of heroes. They stake a claim to be the people telling this story. And, yeah, it just sets you up for what this film is going to be, which is ripping up the rulebook, doing something different, and having a lot of fun while doing it. It struck me that... Because there's some really fun presentational stuff in this film about how the story is told, and especially the stuff with the muses, it's playing with the Greek urn imagery. So then when they're introducing Hercules' story, we see him fighting monsters and fighting titans on Greek urns, using that art style, which for me really reminded me of the beginning of Moana, especially when we're seeing the story of Maui playing out and it's using those Polynesian art styles and bringing that into the film as a way to bring the audience in to tell you a story up front before we get into the story itself. 
which when we get there a long way down the line, Moana, also a Musker and Clements movie. It just struck me as a line through time from Hercules up to Moana. This is really true. Musker and Clements have directed probably more Disney movies than anybody else, certainly more iconic Disney movies than anybody else, right? And it's kind of hard to pin down. We're trying to do this with Wooly Riverman, who's like also probably challenging for that title, and think about what are they bringing to this as directors? What's their auteurist presence? And I guess there is lines that can be drawn between Great Mouse Detective, Little Mermaid, Aladdin. They are all musicals to an extent. They all have these big bombastic villains and things like that. But they're also kind of just standard Disney tropes by this point. But this movie really feels like a follow-up to Aladdin in the same way that Hunchback really feels like a movie from the directors of Beauty and the Beast. This feels like a movie that was made by the guys who gave us the genie, who gave us that vessel for cartoonalism and anachronism and intertextuality and, and pop. And straight away, you can tell that this is a movie that takes that idea and extends it to the entire film in the same way that Hunchback and Notre Dame took an impulse from Beauty and the Beast, this gothic impulse, and made it the movie, let it subsume the whole film. Musker and Clements have done the same with what I'm going to call the cartoonal, with cartoonalism, and applied that to the entire film. Yeah, that struck me so much. I mean, we talked about this with Paul Shear when we did the Aladdin episode, how really, I'd never thought about it in that way, but Aladdin is effectively a comedy overall, but it's still really an action-adventure movie, and although this is a superhero movie, effectively what they've done with Hercules here, to me, this film is probably Disney's first, like, out-and-out comedy, like, proper, every moment really is played for laughs, it's played for gags, which, to start seeding this early, Sam, is slightly where I trip up on this film, that for me, it's kind of lacking hearts but I think that is almost by design because they are just looking at every moment and going how can this be a gag and they are stuffing this thing full of jokes front to back which begins with this sequence really with the ripping up of the rule book with the lighten up dude moment from the muses but yeah this film is a proper proper comedy from Disney in a way that I don't think we've seen before and I think that is a really interesting thing to see. I think that's something that's going to kind of reverberate through this whole conversation the way that it does through the film itself. It feels like a movie directed by the genie, is how I might describe <laughs> and it. And the genie has gone, okay, I think at least three of the characters here need to also be the genie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Just pick one. <laughs> and they need to be the genie, they need to have like iconic character actors doing the voices. That is such a thing now. We've had some fairly famous actors. We had Mel Gibson in Pocahontas, for example. Oh. We had like Jason Alexander is genie-esque in Hunchback of Notre Dame as well. But here we have Wayne Knight, the god of to speak three lines of dialogue as the guy who Hercules breaks his pots. <laughs> it's like, this is... A couple of movies ago, Wayne Knight would have been, like, the main sidekick in the movie, and now he gets three lines. Now we have Danny DeVito. We have... James Woods, again, like Gibson, politics abhorrent, but we'll get to it, does a great job in this movie. We have Rip Torn as Zeus, <laughs> like an absolute legend, absolute maniac of an actor. It's a big role, but he's not getting the most dialogue in the movie. Yeah, there are a lot of genies in this thing. Bobcat Goldthwait is paying as well, was that like a really big comedian at the time. 
the genie's direct nerd. He's given all of the parts to one tier below Robin Williams, comedians and character actors. It's not taking itself seriously at any step. And I can see how if you were signing up for a movie that does have the heart of something like Aladdin, you might be a little bit disappointed. And I think maybe that's exacerbated by the fact that there are points at which this movie does try and reach towards that, like with Hercules's Go the Distance number and some of the stuff with Meg towards the end of the movie, and doesn't quite manage it, doesn't quite manage to pull that off. But if you are taking this for what it is, which is a movie which is entirely giving itself over to comedy, giving itself over to nonsense, where you're not really supposed to take any of it seriously, because it doesn't really take itself too seriously, I think there's a lot to enjoy. Yeah, and I think if it was doing this stuff in a very straight-up way, potentially the Greek god stuff could feel a bit dry and a bit worthy, and it doesn't. I think that's where the film really works, because using this approach allows them to have loads of fun with the setting of Greek gods. So let's talk about this interpretation of the Greek gods, of Mount Olympus, of our godlike characters here, which, as you say, they're in a big cloud in the sky. They're drawing from kind of maybe Christian mythology there, although I've kind of always pictured the Greek gods on a big cloud in the sky. Maybe that's because of this movie and other kind of representations of the Greek gods through time. But it's a really fun look. I loved how... All of the different characters, when we go to Mount Olympus, all of the gods have their own very distinctive looks. And it felt like a precursor to me of almost some of the more recent, really expressive Pixar stuff of characters from something like Inside Out or Soul, mm. where they're these very impressionistic characters. I don't know if that's the right word to use, but they are kind of interpreting these characters characteristics to physically embody them, but also deck them out in crazy colours, make them look otherworldly don't try and make them look like people make them look like completely other entities of yeah bright red skin and they're glowing i love the way the gods glow in this movie and they have this aura around them that feels really visually impressive and i think gets the point across of these gods being impressive i have to imagine this was a big thing that drew you in as a kid watching this sam right exactly because it's like Every one of these guys has their own story, and that's the Gerald Scarf influence, right? It's got to be. It's like all of these gods in the actual mythology have hundreds of stories written about them. They've all got really unique personalities and capabilities, and we can't just have them look like generic Disney background characters for that reason. They all have to look like they could be the main character in their own movie, and that's why you get an expert caricaturist in. It's almost like these are caricatures drawn of celebrities because they are the celebrities of this world. He's taken the characteristics ascribed to them and myth and exaggerated them. And yeah, that really grips me as a kid and makes me want to read more about these characters because it's like, who are these guys? And every single one of them is you can go and read about them in books like Ares, Hephaestus, Aphrodite, characters who pop up for seconds in this. You can go off and read hundreds and hundreds of pages worth of, of their own personal history and what else they got up to. Usually horrific, usually <laughs> not really in the children at all. And they all hated each other. They're not going to baby showers together in the mythology. It's not a big party in the sky like they make it out to be. No, not quite. And again, the Hercules series captures that a bit more closely, which we might talk about. Yeah, that is absolutely what captured me about it. Let's learn more about all of these guys because they all look so unique. Which, I mean, we're still going to get to the comic book stuff a little bit later down the line, but that is absolutely the approach with comic books as well, that you read 
whatever Marvel comic and it might have Captain America on the front, but inside, I don't know, Iron Man pops up for a couple of pages and then he flies off and it's like, well, if you want to read more about him, there's a whole load of Iron Man comics, which, again, if we're talking about this as a foundational myth of Dr. Sam Summers, (laughs) it all comes back here. Your comic book love, you go deep on your Marvel and DC comics. It's true. The first Marvel comic I read... I was already into Spider-Man from the cartoons and everything, but the first actual comic I read was an Avengers comic, and that's what really got me into the whole universe, because there's pages on this. Who is, like, Hawkeye? Like, I guess I knew Captain America and Iron Man from TV, maybe, but then it's like, Giant Man, The Wasp, Wonder Man, The Scarlet Witch, I want to know all of these guys, so I'm going to have to keep reading, I'm going to have to buy books dedicated to explaining that to me, I'll have my parents buy them for me. So, um, yeah, it's exactly like that, actually. It, it, it exactly lines up with my first experience of, of a comic book universe as well. And do you have a favourite god from this film? Like, it's an obvious one for me to pick, but I really like Hermes with his little glasses, his little sunglasses. I think he's just got a cool look. Uh, He's flying around all blue and vibey. The pressure that he feels as Zeus's kind of emissary, he has a bit of the vibe of Sebastian in The Little Mermaid for Mm. me, where he's like, you can tell that on his own, he's a pretty chill guy, but he massively feels the responsibility of basically being the underling to the big boss who's going to get told what to do at any second. Yeah, he's cool as ice. That's another like celebrity voice casting. That's Paul Schaefer, who was David Letterman's sidekick and band leader on his late night show. So that's why he plays a bit of piano at the end. He plays a bit of keyboards. Just a really cool voice, but again, a character who is very closely based on the person who is portraying them. He's the most memorable and he gets the most to do. But I love the design of Apollo in this. I love the design of Aphrodite in this. Dionysus is always a classic. He's got like grapes in his hair and stuff. He's a little squat guy. That's that's pretty cool. So many to choose from. Yeah, I don't know. I'm going to say up front, I don't really know what I'm thinking Disney Versity Legends wise for this film. I think I have one or two question marks. Possibly not one for this movie, I don't know. But I imagine there are all sorts of gods, background gods in this who you are deeply obsessed with. I do have a legend. (laughs) We can get to it now or we can get to it later. Well, I'm sure it'll come up. If it's later in the film, it'll come up organically. We'll get there in the end. But let's talk about the birth of Hercules himself, because we get various versions of this character through the course of the film. And first up, it's Baby Herc. And we have Baby Herc with Zeus, with Hera, his mum and dad, on Mount Olympus, which... Again, it feels very much like the the Superman myth. He's going to be separated from them, and so the film has to do a bit of heavy lifting of let's show this little family unit that's about to be torn apart a few minutes later. Uh, that for me, I, yeah, the the emotional threads. I think there are moments where this film sets things up to be emotional, and ultimately, for me, can't pay it off. But it is a really sweet way to start this film with these loving new parents and seeing these characters who are gods just in awe of this little tiny cute baby really sweet yeah and he's a strong little baby as well and he can (laughs) grab you really hard he can can give you a good grab on your finger everyone loves it when babies grab the fingers and this is just that but hardcore and he's got a little mate he's got a little mate who's a cute little horse yeah and we'll like him a lot everything about this movie is great (laughs) (laughs) baby pegasus is so cute that's my note for this baby pegasus cute that's it (laughs) 
Yep. Built from clouds to be yes. a pal. He must be so soft to cuddle. <laughs> is he still made of clouds as a grown-up? Is that a bad thing for him to yeah, be well, as an adult horse? Why wouldn't he be? Why wouldn't he be made of clouds? He's always, once a cloud, always a cloud. I was in there the other day. If you like Baby Pegasus, you can currently buy Baby Pegasus plushies in the London branch of the Disney store. So I've been considering it. I was going to say, how tempted were you? Quite tempted, yeah. <laughs> but... If we're talking about how this film connects to other Disney films, Hades has been stealing tricks from Maleficent because he hears there's a christening for this baby, right? And he goes, I'm just going to rock up in the middle and absolutely tear it to shreds. I'm going to ruin this whole occasion for everyone involved. Big Maleficent energy from Hades there. Turns up with plans to kill this baby, as you do. Big villain stuff from him. But it goes wrong, pain and panic, mess it up, and we end up with Herc depowered alive on earth growing up with parents who aren't gods growing up with simple farm folk who instill him with good values and that is absolutely the superman myth we are telling a man of steel origin story with teenage herc getting used to the fact that he is super strong while also having grown up away from the gods away from his parents learning what the responsibility of those powers means learning how he should use them, why he should use them, what that's going to mean for him, and what his lineage is. Yeah, how much of this is from the real myth? How much was this the filmmakers just going, we kind of want to make a Superman movie, but what if it was just Hercules instead? Absolutely none of it is from the Greek myth. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) Like, this is, it's completely new. There's lots of things about Hercules that are difficult to adapt, which we'll get to. In general, it's difficult to adapt into one movie because it's so episodic and many people have tried and failed. There's been several live action Hercules, as I don't think there's ever been like a definitive good one. So, none of this is from the myth. We'll talk about the actual circumstances of his birth in Discarded because it was very much discarded, but it was not this, okay? He was not cast down from the heavens and raised by simple farm folk as a mild-mannered lunkhead. That is Superman. Everything about his Superman, even going off to the Temple of Zeus and seeing a vision of his father, is Superman. Going off to the Temple of Marlon Brando in Superman <laughs> the movie. The Fortress of Solitude, right? The Fortress of Daditude. <laughs> Pedro Pascal's house. It's all <laughs> taken from Superman. So much of it. Megara in this is Lois Lane, right? The hard-nosed, very like cynical and savvy version of Megara in this is Lois Lane. Having Hades as this like industrialist, this boss, this dealmaker, that's Lex Luthor, right? Superman is Hercules. Hercules is Superman. And that changes everything about this story. That's one of the reasons why this movie is so fascinating to me. That's what my dissertation was about. It's what my published chapter on Hercules is about. It's about once you take this myth and make it Hercules, once you take the ultimate Greek hero and make him the ultimate American hero, what happens to the values of the story? And we see that Americanization of the character realised in so many other ways in this movie. We see it in Thebes, which becomes New York. It's the Big Olive. (laughs) Phil is walking here as he goes through Thebes. He actually says it. No one in Oliver and Company even says it. Yeah, I knew instantly when that was mentioned that I was like, okay, another reason why this is one of Sam's favourite movies, because a guy literally says, I'm walking here. 
So we've, we've got that. Thebes is New York. Obviously, Metropolis is also, to an extent, New York and Superman. And Hercules is training with Phil. Obviously, mirrors like Rocky and the Karate Kid and other archetypal American stories. Everything about this is Greece forced into America. America grafted onto Greece. The whole anachronistic story world of this film is what happens when we do that. And it all comes from this idea of Hercules is Superman now. Or that's at least the most obvious manifestation of that. So, for example, in the original story, Amphitryon and Alchemine aren't farmers. They are the king and queen of Thebes. Like most Greek heroes, Hercules is royalty. He's not just some rando. He's not just a man of the people. That is the American dream. The fact that anyone can come from anywhere and achieve vertical mobility. That's the Superman story. He's an immigrant, he's a farmer, he's a worker, and yes, he he has help from the fact that he is Kryptonian, but what he does with that power, what he's able to achieve with that power, is all him. It all comes from inside. And that is what Hercules is in this. They've taken this story of, of yet another noble Grecian hero and made it a story of upward mobility. There's other aspects of this where it's a Greek myth made to reflect American ideals by forcing it into the Superman mould. And that is fascinating to me. Yeah, I mean, the Superman thing comes across most strongly because it's so overt. And as you say, it grafts onto like the whole film and the entire ecosystem of this film, not just Hercules himself. But it also made me think of Star Wars, obviously just going on the classic hero's journey thing of Luke at the beginning of Star Wars is growing up on a farm in the middle of nowhere, away from his parents, dreaming of a bigger destiny and finding out that he has this incredible lineage and power. That felt very prescient. Also, I'm going to show myself up here, but it felt like there was a bit of a Macbeth thing because of the three witch characters. Is that drawn from the Greek mythology? Was that where Shakespeare got that from? Or was that just part of the weird brew that becomes this film? Yeah, triple goddesses or um, kind of trifectas of witches are really common in mythologies from all over the world. So there are triple goddesses like the Fates in Greek mythology, the Norns in Norse mythology who are like these, the goddesses of of prophecy. I think there are triple goddesses as well. There's triple goddesses in, in Celtic mythology. So Shakespeare's three witches were pulling from that. But I do think maybe the depiction of the Fates in this movie is is pulling from Shakespeare in turn. We got one in uh, The Black Cauldron, actually. There's the three witches in The Black Cauldron who fit into that mould really closely. Usually it's it's a mother, a maiden, and a crone, and that's what we've got in The Black Cauldron, basically three different ages of woman. And in this, they're all crones, because that's cool to draw. (laughs) (laughs) And they can all share one eyeball, and they can cut people's lives like a piece of string. Yeah, it was just such a fascinating mix of who Hercules is in this film, because, yes, he is Clark Kent, he is Superman, he is Luke Skywalker... He is like a straight-up American teenager. That is very much the milieu that they are leaning into, especially in the central part of this film where he's like an ordinary teenager or he's, I don't know, bullied. They call him Jercules, which, I mean, let's be honest, (laughs) inherently quite funny. Good pun, solid pun. But then it goes from there and it becomes also this story of celebrity. It's about him getting basically endorsements and deals and becoming a celebrity within Greece, which also feels like an American fantasy, an American wish fulfillment thing happening before our eyes. I mean, beyond all of that stuff, what do you make of Hercules as 
a character, as our central hero, away from the things that it's playing into as a film. Because for me, I kind of found him a bit lacking. I found him a bit lacking in personality, and I was getting all the illusions, but not getting much from him. I found him weirdly, I think this might be partly the point, but I found him weirdly a little bit meek when he's not doing the heroic stuff, which is an interesting flip point, right? That he's a hero a lot of the time, but he's also just a normal, slightly shy, gawky guy the rest of the time. But I didn't find that very charismatic. I didn't think the film made me like Hercules enough. Oh, see, I do like Hercules for that reason. Meek, you say meek, I would say mild-mannered, which is how Clark Kent's always described, because that's what this is again, right? And it's interesting because with Superman, we have the natural bifurcation of that character, where he's heroic when he's Superman, but he's mild-mannered when he's Clark Kent, and the versions of that story have always blurred the lines about which is the real character. And here because he doesn't have a secret identity per se, those two things are much more closely intertwined and it's harder to separate the hero from the everyman. Um, And that's why I think it's very useful that they've set him up straight away as being clumsy. Like, yes, he is strong, but the very thing that makes him, again, quite super heroic, you get this with a lot of the X-Men, the very thing that makes him special and powerful is also what makes him, as they call him, a freak. So that is why we have that meekness. And I think I think that works. You can see why he is the way he is. You can see why this character would be a little bit stunted, a little bit naive, a little bit innocent. And the directors have said in this movie, it's, it's less a story about good versus evil than it is a story about idealism versus cynicism. And I do like Hercules as the lone idealist in this movie where even his friends, even Phil and Meg, are cynics and, and Hades is the ultimate cynic to whom everyone is a means to an end. Yeah, I like Hercules in this. I think he's fun. I think he's got more to him than your typical Disney lean man. I think he's up there with Aladdin. I don't see why Aladdin as a character is, is a lot better than this. I think he's more flawed as a character than Aladdin, which makes him more interesting to me. Yeah, for me, I think Aladdin's just got more charm and charisma overall. This is true, but yeah. to be fair, Hercules has incredible game. Him getting swallowed by a head of a hydra and then slicing its neck open from the inside is one of the coolest things I've ever seen. I don't know if any live-action versions of this have ever done that. I think they are doing a live-action Disney version of this. It's going to be Guy Ritchie. Again, the Aladdin connection there kind of makes sense produced by the Russo brothers, who made a bunch of Avengers movies. The comic book roots come through strong. But yeah, they need to include the scene where Hercules cuts himself out of the neck of the Hydra, because that really got me on his side, Sam. That really won me over. Yeah, we get some pretty good action scenes in this, right? He works as a superhero, aside from everything else, and that Hydra scene with all of the CGI is excellent. I think as, as a CGI character, the Hydra is really underrated, as an organic CGI character, which, you know, the organic characters, the humans in Toy Story, didn't quite work. All of the characters who really work in that movie are made of plastic. But here we have a character who looks, like, slimy and slithery, and it doesn't have a lot of personality, but it does have expressions, you know, which which work, and they've really closely translated Scarf's drawings to create this fantastic CGI creature, which doesn't composite perfectly, I don't think, but it's it's cool to look at, yeah. Yeah, you can tell it's a 3D CGI creature in an otherwise largely 2D film. Obviously, it has, at this stage in Disney 
we're getting a lot of blurring between this shot has a bunch of 3D stuff in with the 2D stuff, but this Hydra in particular, I think it's a really cool use of CGI. We talked about how in the Beauty and the Beast ballroom sequence, having that 3D ballroom has an emotional effect as well as a visual one. And I felt the same here, that it makes this villain feel really formidable and otherworldly in a way, that Hercules has to fight this guy who has many dimensions to him and then eventually many more heads. Yeah, I thought it looked really cool. I loved that shot as well where the screen is turning red and blue and we have that sort of helter-skelter shot down the many Hydra necks. That was incredibly cool. Loved that. Yeah, some great fights here. Uh, Let's talk though, because I think where I struggle in not feeling the charisma necessarily of Hercules is because just running away with the entire movie, like just grabbing it in his arms and running away with his little head on fire is Hades. Absolutely loved Hades in this film. And for me, if we're going to pick one character who should remain the genie in this movie, I'm sorry, Phil, you're not going to be it. Phil does not get to be the genie in my version of Hercules. But Hades, absolutely, yes, You can warp the film around your personality, around your performance, imbue it with all of that because, yeah, the way that he looks, the way that the voice performance kicks in, everything about Hades, everything about Hades was on point. Loved it. Yeah, James Woods, again, rotter of a bloke, really, (laughs) really kills it in this film. You can't get away from it. It's a huge amount of the appeal. It's a completely different Disney villain to what we've seen before and it's a completely different energy to bring to this type of story to this type of greek epic this like used car salesman hollywood agent bad boss guy it's just different right it just is the perfect cynic for hercules to play off of and we just get these excellent streams of dialogue much of which i do think was improvised which paint a great picture of this guy i want to see more of this guy and james woods reprises this role more than most celebrity disney voice actors do as well like i don't think he's going to be asked to do it again anytime soon for reasons that are obvious if you know anything about james woods these days but all the kingdom hearts games all the tv show everything like that it's all the same actor and all the same great personality but there are some great stories about near misses when it comes to casting Hades. Would you like to hear some of them? Yes, and I'm really hoping Jeffrey Katzenberg is involved in a lot of these crazy almost decisions. <laughs> He's sadly not. He's really? gone by this point. Yeah, but uh... it's Michael Eisner is still involved and wow, the names. So Jack Nicholson was first choice. Right. <laughs> was it because Genie did an impression of him in Aladdin and they were like, well, let's just get Jack Nicholson. That makes Quite sense. Quite possibly. So the story goes, Jack Nicholson, he's a Disney fan. His daughter at the time, huge Disney fan. They said, come to the Disney studios, we'll give you the full tour. His daughter turns up in a Snow White costume. They send someone, say like, okay, look, she's in a Snow White costume. I want you to go and get all the Snow White stuff that we have lying around. We're going to give it to Jack Nicholson's daughter. They give him the whole shebang, and then they sit him down, and they're like, okay, Jack Nicholson, please be in our movie. You love us, we love you. He says, I want $15 million. Oh. And, and... 50% of any merchandise sold with Hades' face on it. That will be the point where Disney were like, absolutely not 50% of merchandise? That's never going to happen. 
because that's the deal he got on Batman. Right. So he knows an enormous percentage of Jack Nicholson's personal wealth will be made up purely of the points that he got on Batman merchandise. He's like, I know these nerds have money and I want it. So he was he just took his daughter and all the Snow White stuff they gave them and he was just, see you later guys, I'm out of here. <laughs> Do you know what? A real Hades move. Straight up Hades move. <laughs> exactly, that's what Hades would do. He was perfect for the part, it turns out, right? That is the second craziest story about the casting of Hades. Because they also auditioned a guy called Robert Evans. Do you know the name Robert Evans? It's not ringing any bells, unlike Quasimodo. Not really an actor, Robert Evans. Started off as an actor when he was younger. But his real claim to fame is as a producer. He is one of the most successful producers of the new Hollywood era. So he is the man in part behind movies like Rosemary's Baby, like Chinatown, like The Godfather. And better than all of them put together, this is the producer of Robert Altman's Popeye. I knew we were going there. I knew that's what you were leading towards. I was like, he's talking about 70s cinema. He's talking about specific auteurs of that era. It's something Sam's really obviously personally excited about. It's got to be the Robert Altman Popeye movie. There it is. Yep. So Robert Evans, one of Hollywood's most legendary producers, convicted cocaine trafficker. He was asked to audition for Hades. Because, again, it fits they were batting this around this character he's like a he's sleazy he's slimy he's he's like a hollywood agent why don't we get one of the biggest hollywood sleaze bags of them all we'll get robert evans and the gollum in and he requested that he do his audition in the dark (laughs) and lying down on a pile of cushions (laughs) (laughs) did it work did it make a good voice performance i mean evidently not he didn't get the job No, it was terrible. It was, by all accounts, absolutely (laughs) terrible. They were like, this guy can't act. We just want him to be himself on this. We just want him to play himself. But he he can't do it. The character of Robert Evans is almost like something he invented. It is him playing a part. But uh, when you actually ask him to act, apparently not up to much. So after all that, it went to James Woods. But there we go. That's another mention of Rob Altman's Popeye movie for the guy who makes the list on Letterboxd of every film that we mention. We love you. Stick another little note under Popeye. (laughs) Yeah, well, it ultimately went to somebody who, whatever crazy nonsense he spat in these days, gave a great performance in this film as Hades. It's, It's such a fun character, such a fun performance. To me, it just plays like if the genie was Ursula, it has the freewheeling comedy nature of the genie performance. It also has the incredible camp fun of Ursula and the unashamed villainy and the outsideriness that comes out through that performance of Ursula. You really feel that in Hades as well. It feels like the next level up of villain. If you imbue him with the genie's crazy comic energy, that is what you get. Uh, and some of the line readings are amazing. I love when Hades is making his stand at the end to take Mount Olympus and says to Zeus, I'm the one giving orders now, Bolt Boy. I loved Bolt Boy. <laughs> For some reason, just really tickled me. Uh, yeah, he was a lot of fun in this film. A massive part of my enjoyment. Yeah, it's interesting that you mention like Ursula, like Scar as well. He is this outsider. He comes from outside of the status quo to an extent. He's someone who's being cast out by Zeus or Mufasa or Triton, who are these big 
macho kings, proper real rulers. And this is another movie where basically it's about, even though this is a guy who grew up on a farm and everything like that, it's about him not upending the status quo but maintaining it and protecting it from people like Hades which is maybe something on which he differs from a lot of versions of Superman because you know there are a lot of similarities between Lex Luthor and Hades but Lex Luthor is the most powerful guy in Metropolis and Hades doesn't have any real power outside of the underworld which is a place he's being condemned to not somewhere he works by choice. Yeah, it feels like Superman sticks up for the little guy, fights back against corporate America, and you get probably a flipping of that here, really, with the power structures in play. Hades, as well, has Pain and Panic, his two little buddies, uh, one of which I think we decided it was Pain. I had my mask when I was a kid. But again, they're kind of funny little oddballs as well. They're also outsider-y characters. It feels like they fit with Hades vibe in this film of the perspective he's coming from pain and panic they kind of just want to impress their boss but they also want a little taste of what hades wants for themselves they want their slice of the pie you know which they're being denied under this current system they also want a little taste of herculade that's one of the <laughs> one of the best gags in the movie i think real comedic time and when he's he's fuming he's kicking off at pain because he's wearing these little hercules crocs and then he hears that little slurp 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 and he turns around and there's panic with his little cup of herculade and he goes hehe thirsty and Hades freaks out and there's a big explosion that you only see from a distance fabulous stuff and again rooted in this idea of the anachronism and it's it's that thing you brought in before about Hercules in this he is merchandised that's a core part of who he is that's a core part of his journey he's Mercules he is Mercules yes he has a Hercules store in fact which is obviously very similar to the Disney store which raises the question of is this an anti-consumerist movie or is this a movie that wants us to buy all of these things? Because lots of these things were real things that you could buy. So what, it's having its cake and eat it in that sense. Could you get Air Herc trainers? Was that a real thing? I'm not 100% sure, but you definitely could get the Herculade Cups. And again, can still buy them in the uh, in the London Disney store because I was in there the other day. And again, I'm thinking, why did I not buy that at the time <laughs> and, and come up to my lectures with a big cup of Herculade? You could have paid for it on your Hercules-styled Amex card. Exactly, yes. Grecian Express, Grekex, I guess it would be. And as you say, Air Herc, Air Jordan... Michael Jordan, that's the other part of the puzzle. He's Superman, he's Rocky, he's Michael Jordan. That's kind of the the trifecta that make up this version of Hercules. And Jordan was cited as an influence and certainly was the most merchandised individual in America at this point. So it makes sense that that's who they've gone to to inspire them here. Yeah, someone should make a film about that. Uh, maybe in the Disney universe called Air. And it's about the deal that they do to get Hercules on board to launch the Air Herc trainers. Yeah, we'll workshop that after this podcast. Yeah. Would Hercules be in this movie in a prominent role, would you say? I feel like the guy whose name is on the shoe kind of doesn't really need to be in the film. We could just talk about the corporate guys. I think that's enough. Yeah, that sounds fun. Of the many things that this film is trying to be, though, it's trying to be a superhero story, it's trying to be an outright comedy, it's trying to be a Greek myth adaptation to a very loose extent... It's also trying to be a love story in that Hercules and Megara, Meg, are kind of getting together through this film. But it doesn't play it in the way that most other Disney movies do. 
it upends that narrative because as we find out meg is being forced to work for hades through a lot of this film he has her soul she has to do his bidding she is kind of growing feelings for hercules through the course of the film but is having to act against him which plays into this kind of weird dynamic when they first meet i don't know in a very typically 90s disney way they do the like action hero woman character thing and they did a great job of that i think especially as we talked about in hunchback as much as there are many things to discuss with esmeralda her heroic action-packed qualities and the same with pocahontas as well that is really working that's that's great i think with meg they take it a step further not just in having her be introduced as seemingly a damsel in distress who actually has the whole situation under control but also her feelings for hercules as you say are tied up also in cynicism she's been tasked with chasing him down and making him fall in love with her which is then causing the real feelings to emerge it's a complex mix but the thing that for me again i struggled with is that then i didn't buy into this relationship towards the end of the film meg is saying oh no i really love you and they're making these big sacrifices for each other that for me weren't substantiated in the rest of the film maybe by design maybe they're trying to have their cake and eat it by having it be this cynical ploy but not giving enough time to develop the real thing what do you make of the meg love story here that's really interesting point this idea that you don't think it was substantiated i mean it's there's a lot to get through in this film it's a short film they go through at a real clip i think i said this with the lion king as well i was surprised watching this again this time round how fast everything happens. They don't have a whole lot of room to develop that Meg character. But I think there's a lot that's implied in these characters' backgrounds that kind of explains that. Like, Hercules is a lunk. Hercules is like, he's a himbo, right? He's a big, dumb dude. (laughs) And also, this is his first real crush, right? He's got women, like, fangirls throwing themselves at them. But quite creepily, it seems to be Phil that's really chasing after those girls, which I didn't love. (laughs) Oh, Phil, he is quite literally a sex pest. There you go, there's your characterisation, kids. Also, there's one point where Phil goes, I got a fur in my wedgie, and I was like, nah, you gotta cut that line, never repeat that again. I can't can't handle that. Yeah, I mean, that's all quite characteristic for a Greek satyr, but uh, yeah, I don't think we're needing it that much in this children's movie. Anyway... Hercules, he's not interested, he's interested in this one woman, it's his first crush. I think it makes sense that this character would fall really, really hard. And Meg is interesting as well because she has a lot of betrayal in her background. And I think finding out that Hercules isn't like other guys is a big part of her swing on him. The fact that she swings straight round to falling head over heels. It's not like a great version of a love story, but I think there's enough in the backgrounds of these characters that it makes sense that they've quite quickly fallen for each other. I mean, she's not just cynical. When we meet her, we get these lines that suggest she's very cynical about men in particular. They think no means yes and get lost means take me, I'm yours. And that works as a great contrast to Herc's naivety. And I think it works to further this more independent attitude that 90s Disney women have. I mean, she is ultimately a damsel in distress at several points in the film in different ways. So it's not exactly doing lords with the female Disney character in terms of how much 
agency she has ultimately but in terms of her attitude in terms of her willingness to specifically call out what she finds to be problematic behavior with men i think that's pretty cool i think she's got a good attitude for a disney princess compared to the slightly emptier rebellion of a character like jasmine maybe who is unhappy with a station but she doesn't explicitly call it out as like a result of the patriarchy or anything like that I think it's interesting because I don't think I had maybe identified this while I was watching the film, but I think, as you've pointed out, the word cynicism comes up a lot. And I think a lot of the time we spend with Meg, it is coming from a characterful place, but she is very cynical. And the vocal delivery, the vocal performance is very droll, it's very dry. And the look of the character as well, the way the character's designed, I have to be honest, I don't love the stylistic designs of the characters here. It's just not my preferred... It's interesting. It's just not how I really like these films to look. It doesn't do anything for me on a visual level, the kind of way that these characters are designed. And I think that, for me, highlighted Hercules feeling a bit blank, but it also highlighted then in Meg everything just feeling a bit off. I just couldn't get on the Meg wavelength i think for some characters it really works like hades something that i meant to mention before was the way that his character fills the frame and explodes the frame in flames that he can turn his arms into wisps of smoke for some of the greek god stuff it really works with the human characters i found it distancing for me i couldn't connect to that and so i think i struggled to connect to hercules and also struggled to connect to meg and couldn't buy into their romance when I really needed to in the final chapter. Oh, that's interesting. I, I'm i saying that a lot, I think. That's interesting, which is my way of saying I do not agree with what you've said. <laughs> um, I never felt that it distanced me from the characters. Some of the, the critics I was reading, the, the reviewers actually agree with you, Ben, uh, some of them quite strongly. But I never felt that, although now watching it, it is obvious that Meg has the most exaggerated hourglass figure of any of the Disney women we've encountered so far. The hyper-stylization of the designs in this film in general give, whether it's Scarf or the animators, the opportunity to exaggerate the stereotypically attractive properties of this woman. In fact, one of the premises of her design was that her hips and chest are meant to be shaped like Greek vases. And there's kind of like x-rays of the character where they've drawn her as being built around these vases. So it's all tied in thematically in a way. I do love her voice. Uh, Susan Egan, who was Broadway's Belle in the Beauty and the Beast musical. Oh, really? plays a very, uh, was almost not cast on this film because of how strongly Musker and Clements and Mencken associated her with Belle, who was a very different character, but I really love what she does with this. She said that um, Belle is her acting and Meg is more who she actually is, which I think is fascinating and cool. And yeah, she gives good cynicism. And I think that cynicism is believably and organically peeled back. It's not just a U-turn. Her whole big song, which we'll talk about, is all about that. It's all about removing those layers. And she's being egged on in that song by the muses who are the embodiment of art and in this case like the embodiment of of romance with a capital r it's almost their influence which is 
turning her into more of an idealist, making herself more at peace with her emotions, with her feelings for Hercules. So she is shown as being wrong to be cynical in the same way that Phil eventually is as well. His cynicism is rooted in his distrust of Meg. And, you know, all it took was the right guy to come along and make her fall head over heels. But there is this, like, kind of feminine influence there as well from the muses almost embodying her inner voice in the way that the gargoyles do in Hunchback of Notre Dame which I think makes it feel organic yeah but again this is a character who thinks she doesn't need saving but she's wrong like whether it's with Nessus the centaur or with Hades I always have this complaint about Princess Fiona in Shrek where this is the vision of a strong independent woman, like the stereotype of a strong independent woman, but ultimately she still needs the big green fella to come in and save the day in every single movie, and that's kind of what we have with Meg. So, as with all Disney women from this era, and probably ever, imperfect, but I like what they're doing with her, and I like the ways that she's different from the rest of the pack. Yeah, and it is an evolution of what they've been doing in these previous films. It's interesting seeing that evolution happen, and as you say, the general cinematic evolution towards Shrek. We're getting closer with every movie. But even though I didn't really buy necessarily into these characters or into that relationship, where the film did really get me, as well as Hades, my guy was the songs. I think the songs in this are incredible and so much fun. And I love when Disney goes full pop banger. And in this instance, as you say, that is through Motown and Soul, infused with big pop melodies. Uh, But yeah, the, the songs with the muses, the more stereotypically Alan Menken, I want song in Go the Distance... I like the Meg song as well. I'm I'm into the Meg song. Is that controversial? I don't know. No, that's one of the hottest songs from the movie. That's like the real cult classic song from the movie, I think. Everybody loves that. It is excellent. I won't say I'm in love. That's the one that I've been singing in the shower over the last few (laughs) days while I've been preparing for this. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And all of that. No chance. No, I'm going to stop. No, no, keep going. I I won't say I'm in love. (laughs) Maybe this will be our new karaoke song. Because we've already done Why Should I Worry from Oliver and Company. Maybe. What's it called? I Won't Say I'm In Love. I Won't Say I'm In Love. Yeah, I thought that was a really great song. And the influence of the muses, the way the muses come back in. uh, Your favourite thing, Sam, a Greek chorus, as often pops up in the cinematic masterpiece Mamma Mia, which both one of our favourite films. They pop up to tell us the story, to play the role of these creative goddesses but also to be the greek chorus to be there to tell the audience what is going on to thread us through the emotions of this story through these big yeah motown bangers where did the idea come up that the muses should basically be like a soul band so in the opening song the gospel truth we obviously have that very clear connection being drawn between gospel music and gods and mythology obviously not christian mythology but the greek gods so that style is appropriate that you know celebrating divinity is appropriate for a movie about gods and apparently it was partly inspired by a musical called gospel at colonus which is an adaptation of the greek myth of oedipus which was recommended to the directors by howard ashman years prior So he said they always asked Howard what Broadway show she would go and see when we're in town and he pointed them towards the gospel at Colonus and they didn't actually see it. But years later when they were writing Hercules they thought, oh we'll go and check that out and I think that's part of the inspiration for giving that style of song to the muses. And 
I think we'll have to say, I think these are the first black human characters in a Disney film or black humanoid characters with a prominent role. Wow, that's crazy to think. Yeah, you might be right. What, 1997? Blimey. I mean, stop me if I'm wrong, but I think it is. There's a guy, we we talked about it at the time, there's a guy with a boombox in the background in Oliver and Company early on. And obviously we get the roustabouts in the sequence of of Dumbo, but part of the mad thing with that scene in that film is that those characters, they are given darker skin, but they are basically not given faces. They are like a faceless mob of people, which... Yeah. If you want to want to hear us dig into that, go and listen to the Dumbo episode. Uh, but yeah, I would say you're probably right. That's that's wild to think about. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So this is kind of a watershed moment for the representation of black people and black culture in a Disney movie. Obviously performed by a group of very talented black singers, many of whom have storied backgrounds on Broadway and in music, but conceptualized and written entirely by white people and worth noting that the same thing happens in the princess and the frog which we're going to come to down the line which is another musker and clements film so you know they are taking a a very kind of sympathetic and celebratory stance towards black culture but in both of those cases none of the songs are actually written by black people so still a long way to go before you get true, fair, on-screen and off-screen representation of black people in this movie, but it's a watershed moment that came way too late that we should still probably acknowledge. So yes, that is As The Muses, Lilius White, Cheryl Freeman, LaShawns, Ros Ryan and Venice Thomas, who, you know, many of whom have storied careers and and you should check them out because they play a really important role in this film and in Disney history. Yeah, and these songs are amazing. I don't know if you have a personal favourite one, but Zero to Hero, I know it's the big obvious number, but it's so good. That is one where, even though I didn't know this film particularly well, I did know that song partly. Friend of the pod, Kate Bennett, who I don't think we've mentioned before, she loves Zero to Hero. I think she's added that to the karaoke list at points when we've been out and about. That catchy chorus is incredible. The wordplay in it, the slapped his face on every vase and every vase. Ah, oh, it's so much fun. It's such a bolt of energy. It's a complete turnaround, as we said before, from Hunchback, where Hunchback is lacking in bangers. It's very dense and very complex and has incredible work in that score and in the songs that build up that score, but it doesn't have hits. And this kind of feels like it's all hits. Zero to Hero is my pick, but I love the Meg song as well. I think the Meg one was really, really fun. And I do think Go the Distance is a great I Want song. I think it's got a really strong, soaring, sweeping melody. It gives you a dose of heart that for me this film needed maybe more of. I think it does a good job of setting that up. But for me, it kind of gives you maybe, I don't know, the wrong thing for Hercules to want at that point. The thing that I wanted Hercules to want and that the film later wants me to want him to want is to be back with his mum and dad, to be back with the gods, to reunite with the parents that he lost. But the film doesn't do much work to put that across. I think it's he wants to be a celebrity, he wants to go the distance, he wants to be a hero, he wants to go out into the world and do his thing. And then later in the film, it's like, oh, I want to go home. And when those moments kicked in, I felt that. 
but it hadn't really been set up for me and it didn't then really get paid off. It sort of does because he gets what he wants and then decides to give it up anyway, but I wanted a stronger thread for Hercules wanting to go back to his mum and dad. All of that aside, Go the Distance, very good. He also does a really long (laughs) note at the end of Go the Distance, which I just found very impressive. He does a really big, right where I belong. It was a long belong. Yeah, I tried to match that. I was singing along to that song while I was watching it today, and I got about two-thirds of the way through that note. I did not realise how long it was going to be, (laughs) and that combined with the fact that I did karaoke at the weekend, characteristically, is why, like Baby Pegasus, I'm feeling a little hoarse today. (laughs) So... (laughs) But so yes, yes, yeah. It wasn't a great idea to try and to try and hit that note. I don't have a problem with Hercules not being desperate to get back with his parents specifically because, and it's a conversation that you have a lot with like Superman as well. That he loves his parents who raised him. He loves Amphitryon and Alchemy. I don't think he's desperate for his real parents because he's really happy with the ones that he's got. What he wants is what what Bell wants. He wants more than this provincial life and. I don't think he quite realises yet that that's going to manifest itself as celebrity because that's what we get eventually over the course of the film with his second meeting with Zeus is this critique of fame as an end in and of itself. There's interesting parallels here with one of the pivotal moments in the life of the mythological Hercules which is that he uh, meets early on his journey the embodiments of vice and virtue who offer him a choice. They say you can either have a life that is kind of quiet and humble but easy and happy, or you can have a life of fame and glory, but you're going to have to work really hard for it, fight a bunch of monsters, go through a lot of hardships, and he takes the latter. And I think this is an interesting movie because that is what Hercules is set up as wanting. He wants the glory. He'll do anything to get it, to go the distance. But then what he ends up with at the end of the movie is he chooses the humble, happy life. So that's another way in which this is maybe reflecting American values more than those original values instilled in the Greek myth. It's saying that you know fame, fortune, glory aren't everything. It's good to achieve, it's good to move upward socially, but also what's important are family values, domesticity, which of course is a theme that I'm obsessed with, continues through all of these Disney films as well. Yeah, I think for me, this whole mix of, like, what does Hercules want? What is the journey of this film? Is it a romance? Is it a superhero story? Is it a Greek myth? All of those things. I think it does an alright job of juggling all of that-ish, but it does lead to this final act that, to me, feels very crowded. It's like, you have this big titan attack, you have this big action set piece that is also reuniting Hercules with Zeus and Hera, It's also learning of Meg's betrayal, but then Meg actually does love him, but then she gives up her life to save him, so he gets his powers back, but then he gives up his life to save her. There's a whole lot going on that's really packed in in the last, like, ten minutes of this film that either needed, for me, like, a bit more breathing room or needed just a few threads kind of tying up before we get to the finale. I enjoyed it all, but it felt busy to me, and... I was kind of enjoying the big titan brawl and having these characters like the big ice guy and the big volcano guy and the lava guy and they're fighting Zeus and then the film kind of keeps going (laughs) and there's always another bit because it has so many things that it's trying to wrap up by the end. 
Yeah, we have three climaxes. We have three final boss fights in this movie. We've got the Cyclops, and then we've got the Titans, and then we've got Hades. And that's great if you want to turn this into a bunch of video games. That's great if you want to have the Hercules video game, and you want to have a whole slew of Hercules-themed Kingdom Hearts boss fights and all of that. But it's, it is quite busy as a climax. Um, he has to like achieve something and learn something in every fight. He has to be on the back foot and then recover in every fight. And it's a lot to get through. But I do like that we climax with a trek through the underworld because that is one of the only things that this has in common with the myth. The final labour of Hercules is a trip to the underworld. And in that case, it's to capture Cerberus. That's something he's been tasked with doing. Here, it's to save Meg. Because this is structured like a story, it has a lot more emotional and thematic relevance, his journey. But the descent to the underworld is, is common in a lot of Greek myths. Most famously, Orpheus, uh, also Odysseus, gets up to it. A lot of them get up to it, all those Greek heroes. Catabasis, it's called, as a dramatic device, and it usually symbolises like the death and the rebirth of the self in the process of trekking into the land of the dead and that's something that very much is the case in this film so this is one of the only points in the movie where it really feels like it's been faithful to an aspect of mythology yeah and i do love that trip to the underworld with hercules at the end and when he dives into the green river of souls and he starts shriveling and dying wow this is some black cauldron stuff all over again uh, with the spooky skeletal imagery but that feels very daunting it feels very real to the audience it's like that scene in the last crusade where the guy drinks from the wrong cup and he just immediately ages and dies that is what's happening to hercules as he's swimming down to save meg's soul um yeah the stakes there feel real again for me i just wish it had that bit of an extra emotional punch to really make it sing for me but i thought that was very very cool and then i did feel the emotion when Hercules gets to join the gods very briefly when he's glowing and he takes Meg and his parents are happy to see him and it's a big celebration and his mum is proud of him that's such a lovely thing and I think I felt the weight of him giving that up but I was like I just don't believe that you love Meg enough <laughs> to give this up I couldn't get on board with it stay in the clouds stay with Hermes he's a vibey guy <laughs> you know, not only does he love Meg enough to give that up, he loves her enough to do something I don't think any Disney hero has done so far, certainly not in the Renaissance, which is just full-on, personally, deck the villain. Usually, it's their own hubris, that's another Greek dramatic term, their own fatal flaw that causes their demise after they've already surrendered to the hero, or the hero has already bestowed them mercy. But in this case... Hercules just punches the dude into the River of Souls. That's more of a superhero thing to do. That's more of a Superman move than a Disney Prince move. I'm just, I don't think Hades is dead, but that's what we wanted Quasi to do, right? Just chuck Frollo to his death, and that's what Hercules finally gives us in this film. And do you know where he got his practice? When he smacked Phil in the face. And let's be honest, Phil was probably asking for it too. What do you think about that? <laughs> <laughs> Ah, oh, very good. Okay, the labours of Disneyversity's Hercules episode aren't over quite yet, but Sam, we have remained friends, we didn't argue, we, we respectfully tiptoed around each other's opinions in that discussion. There's still this final section of the show 
where things might all go to hell. So we'll see, we'll see. We'll be joining Hades at some point. And that brings us to Discarded, the section of the show where we look back at the original tale the filmmakers drew from and explore the bits that didn't make the movie. And I can only imagine there's all kinds of messed up stuff from the actual Greek myths in the Hercules tale. Am I prepared for how dark this is going to get? No. So you, you know nothing. You know nothing about Hercules at all. No, nope, not really. No. Nope. All right. Okay. I think I've seen the film with The Rock in, but I found it very boring. I don't, I don't know what I saw. I don't know what I watched. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. This is, this is all new. Imagine you're me, aged five, reading this stuff in like horrible histories or whatever, okay. right? I'm zapping back to the mid 90s. Absolutely. So obviously there's lots. There's lots and lots of changes. I'm going to try and stick to stuff that is really relevant to what goes on in the film. So I'll I'll do his origin story, his relationship with Meg, and then I'll bring us to an ending. I'll I'll leave out most of the labours. I mean, they are kind of covered. Most of the labours that he has to perform are covered in the Zero to Hero sequence. Even the one where he has to clean a giant stable filled with hundreds of cows and their toxic excrement is alluded to in dialogue (laughs) by Phil in this film. That's the best labour, in my opinion. So this is like where the supermanification of it begins. Hercules is not the child of Zeus and Hera. Oh. He is the child of Zeus and alchemy because that is Zeus's main deal, okay? Most of what he gets up to in the myths is disguising himself to sleep with women. And often, he disguises himself as animals. Oh. Weirdly enough. Oh, no. But that was not the case with Hercules. You'll be pleased to know. We don't have to get into any detail about that. He disguised himself as Amphitryon while Amphitryon was off at war. I mean, that's a horrible thing to do. I mean, that is sexual assault, basically, uh, is what that is. We'll, We'll not dance around it. He disguises himself as Amphitryon to sleep with his wife. And later that night, Amphitryon came home and also slept with Alchemine, causing her to become pregnant with another mortal baby at the same time. Which is not how it works. No, nope. that's not how any of this works. So. <laughs> they were ancient Greeks, Sam. Give them a break. So that is how Hercules was born. Hera had nothing to do with it until she very suddenly did. So the goddess Athena, who appears in the background in this, Zeus's daughter, the patron of heroes, she wanted Hercules to be the next big hero. So she tricks Hera into breastfeeding Zeus's illegitimate child. And it's that godly milk that gives Hercules his supernatural strength. And Hercules... Sorry, Ben. Hercules suckled so hard that she had to push him away and her milk sprayed out across the heavens, forming the stars of the Milky Way. Wow. What? (laughs) Literally the Milky Way. So at some point, because they're creating these myths to explain every natural phenomenon, the sky, the grass, the ground. Of course. Oh, that was now we're just messing around. They're trying to explain how the world works and they look at the stars and they're like, let me tell you a wild story about what those (laughs) stars are. That's nuts that's absolutely crazy and so also then hercules even though zeus is his dad he just would have been straight up mortal wouldn't have had the strength if he hadn't been breastfed by hera yeah in some versions again this is all all over the place there's like different versions where things are slightly different but there's some versions where that's where his strength comes from is is this illicit god milk hera 
which by the way that's where his name comes from right heracles the original ah. greek name so he was named heracles to placate the goddess or to attempt to placate her because she was not too happy about any of this situation the imagine. philandering the breastfeeding so she dedicated herself to tormenting hercules in the myths she is hercules's nemesis not hades right hades is just a guy in all of these myths Hades is just the god of the underworld, and he's dark, and like all of the gods, he gets up to no good every now and then, but he is not the satanic figure. The reason why he is the villain in so many modern adaptations of the story is because of his analogy to Lucifer, and that is it. So, Hera... I mean, Disney don't want to make a movie where someone's stepmother is the villain. I realise now that I've said that out loud that that's almost exclusively (laughs) what they do. (laughs) But they didn't want to do that anymore. This version of that is too weird, okay? So (laughs) Hera is his ultimate nemesis in the myth. She is the original wicked stepmother in a way. Several of Hades' ploys in this film, like the snake attack, the pain and panic disguise themselves as snakes and attack... Uh, the baby Hercules, and that happens, but it's not pain and panic, it's some snakes that Hera sent. Several of the ploys that Hades uses to try and kill Hercules are originally hers. But they cut out the main one, because, I mean, wow. So, Megara, right? We know her, we love her, me Mm. me more than Mm, you. Maybe. She's okay, right, fine. He marries Megara relatively early on in his adventures, before most of his most famous quests. And they settle down and have kids. And then Hera sends Hercules into a fit of madness. And he kills them all. <gasps> that is so bleak. That might be the bleakest discarded we've ever had on this show. Wow. So it is, isn't if it? we're doing this as a comic book story, it's like Scarlet Witch taking over Hulk in Age of Ultron, and he just goes smash happy and starts smashing everything up. But in this case, it's Hercules and his entire family. Oh my god. Yes. So goodbye, Megara. It doesn't matter whether you buy their relationship or not. She is dead. Right, so she's caught up in all of that as well. Crikey. Oh my god. (laughs) Again, these Greeks just coming up with the wildest stories to explain why we have the sky. So, that is why he does the Twelve Labours. That's where the Twelve Labours come from. He goes to a prophet to ask how he can atone for this sin, and he is sent to work for a king, basically, who who gives him all of the labours to perform. So I'm going to skip over all of those. There's the stable one and all of that, and I'm going to take us to the end of Hercules' story, in which he takes another wife. That's how it starts, a woman called Dianeira. And she is kidnapped by... Wait, sorry, does she know what happened to Hercules' last <laughs> wife and entire family? I don't believe so, and also he's had several in-between wives, each of which have their own interesting stories, but we don't have time for all of them. One of the wives made Hercules dress up as a woman and do all the housework in a kind of Mrs. Doubtfire <laughs> scenario. That's a great one, but we'll, we'll not get into that right now. So, Dianeira is kidnapped by another character that we meet in the film, Nessus the Centaur. So, in the film, he is the first villain that Hercules fights. In the myth, he's sort of the final boss. He's Hercules' last enemy. It is Nessus the Centaur who orchestrates Hercules' demise. So, Herc 
kills him with some poison arrows in response for kidnapping his wife. Seems and as fair. he's dying, he says to Dianera, he says, come here, come here, come here, I've got something to tell you. And she's like, yes, centaur who just kidnapped me, what would you like to say? And he whispers in her ear, he says, <laughs> he says, take some of me blood, take some of me blood and keep it in a bottle, right? And if you ever think Hercules is like sleeping around, if you ever think he's cheating on you, just make a love potion with me blood and uh, <laughs> wash his shirt in me blood potion. Okay. And that'll sort it out. And she's like, yeah, that sounds legit. This guy who my husband has just murdered, I'm going to, on his advice, make a love potion from his blood and cover my husband in it. And that's not going to go wrong at all. But also, Hercules has been the worst and he's had so many wives, she probably believes that is possible. She's like, okay, great, this gives me an out. Well, exactly. He's had lots of wives, he's had lots of lovers, of both genders, by the way. Something else Disney did away with, like a lot of ancient Greeks, real and fictional, Hercules was going both ways. So she was understandably worried about cheating, and she did the whole thing, dipped his shirt in the blood, and when he put it on, it burnt all of his skin off. Oh, that's a nifty blood potion. Wow. Yeah, because <laughs> it's, it's got centaur blood, it's got the, the poison from the arrows in there as well. It burns all of his skin off, and while this is happening, he's screaming. Picture this, right? Hercules, most of his skin is yeah. off. He's screaming in agony. It's like the Rock DJ video, but with more screaming. Exactly. He builds himself a funeral pyre, and then he gets his good mate Phil, who in this is not a satyr, he's just a normal guy, his good mate Philoctetes, to light the pyre, and it burns himself to death. I mean, that's really metal. That's crazy. I really hope Meg puts on, like, a hot wash cycle before she does her own clothes. It, was, it wasn't Meg. It, Meg is dead. Oh, it wasn't Meg. This is Dianera. Dianera. Well, I hope she puts some Lenore or something in the machine because <laughs> you don't want any of that leftover residue getting in your clothes by accident. And, of course, he, his spirit, rises to Olympus to live as a god, which is, you know, what he was after all along, so he's pretty happy with that. He went the distance. He went the distance, and then he kept going... And he kept going, and he went a little bit too far. Well, isn't that a lesson for all of us? Live within our means. Whoa, 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 okay, quick, before we move on. Since we are talking about legends, I feel like this might be the time to talk about my possible potential Disneyversity legend for this movie. I can't believe we forgot to do Disneyversity legends! You've, you've had one in the tank this whole time. We forgot, and I wouldn't be surprised if this is a character that you have forgotten <laughs> about. <laughs> What would you say if I said to you that I think if there is a contender for this mm. film, it might be Penelope the Mule? Penelope the Mule. Is that in the sequence where Herc is a teenager when he destroys the town? Yeah, he's got a mule. He's got. There's a mule who pulls Hercules's uh, carriage, who pulls Amphitryon's carriage. But when we meet Hercules as a teenager, he's pulling the carriage, and Penelope the mule is sitting there, sitting beside Amphitryon because she's got a knackered ankle. And I think that the implication is that Herc has perhaps, uh, you know, accidentally maimed this mule oh and now has to pull the carriage and then later on when he sets it down she goes flying up into the air he just can't control his strength and most of that is taken out on 
on Penelope the mule and she wears a little headscarf. And then later <laughs> in the movie, we see during Zero to Hero, Amphitryon and Alchemini's bought them a big new house. And Penelope has a new solid gold, like, Rolls Royce chariot that she can pull, which is probably worse for her because it'll be a lot heavier. Yeah, that but... is not benefiting her. What good is she getting out of that? That is, yeah, vastly heavier for her to drag along. So I think she's mainly, she's not a big fan of Hercules, I don't think. If she could speak, she'd probably join in on those calls of Jercules. <laughs> but she does seem fairly happy at the end. You see her once again briefly during A Star Is Born, and she seems as pleased as anybody that, that Herc has, has made his mark on the world. I like Penelope the Mule. Well, I think all of that, plus the fact that you said she wears a little headscarf, Plus the fact... Yeah, that's the main thing, isn't that's it? That's the main thing. And she's waited so patiently to be mentioned in this episode. This is far later than we'd yes. normally bring up a Disney versity legend. I think we can accept her into the canon. So, uh, do you know what? Because this is your sole pick, do you want to do the fanfare this time? I feel like I often oh. take fanfare duties, but I- I'm going to okay. hand that over to you for this. <clears throat> I didn't expect you to do your own fanfare. That caught me by surprise. What, what, what was the fanfare <laughs> the supposed Hercules to be? Thing. <laughs> it's, it's, it's meant to be the Hercules motif. Is that not? <laughs> Look, I'm not as trained a mouth trumpeter as you. I don't have. I didn't train at Juilliard like you did. <laughs> well, in the privileged position of both having our skin still mercifully attached, as did the critics at the time. What did they say when they saw Hercules? Did they want to wash it in a potion of boiling centaur blood, or were they like, hey? I'm drinking the Herculade. This is pretty good stuff. It received generally warm reviews. In particular, critics praised James Woods' performance. He was openly being compared to Robin Williams in Aladdin, so very happy with that. It was really the animation style that was most divisive, which you seem to be on board with. The critics said that it made the movie look rushed and cheap, which isn't exactly, I don't think, where you were going with it. But I love it because it's so different, and I just don't think these guys had any taste, and that's not necessarily to say the same as you. See, I can't argue with Ben. (laughs) (laughs) But they didn't like it. Yeah, I don't love the way this looks. I don't think it makes it look cheap. I just, I think it makes it look incredibly 90s. I'm skipping mm. ahead to my own thoughts on this. I'll I'll save this for later. But yeah, it's extremely 90s movie. And I think that comes across on the way it looks as much as everything else. Uh, yeah, interesting that critics at the time picked up on that. I didn't know if at the time people would go, oh, it looks so fresh and new and different. And then me looking at it now goes, oh, it's kind of dated the film in a strange way. Can I read you a quote from the Washington Post and see if you agree with this? Word for word. See how much of this you you think is warranted, because it's one of the most brutal critiques that I've read out on this podcast. The animation is some of the worst I've ever cringed through, including the corner-cutting junk of Don Bluth movies and every trashy cartoon that passes for entertainment on Saturday morning television. Ancient Thebes looks like a hastily sketched field trip location from the Magic School Bus. And Hercules, an almost embarrassing set of cheap squiggles, barely qualifies as a drawing. Wow. Okay, there are so many stray bullets in this insane (laughs) drive-by where the magic school bus, Don Bluth, everybody is just catching something off this crazy attack. Yeah, that's... I don't agree with any of that. I don't like the style of this film. I'll, I'll put it pretty much as plainly as that. I don't love the visual style of this film, but 
I don't agree with the level of vitriol there. That's crazy. Justice for the magic school bus. <laughs> okay, well, critics were divided or flinging crazy arrows like that, but... What about the box office? Was this a big movie? I have no conception of whether this was a hit or not, because Hunchback wasn't. So was this a bounce back in a way? Well, first of all, I'd like to start with one way in which it did try and escalate things from Hunchback. We've seen this trend of ridiculously over-the-top premieres, and I need to tell you about this one because this was, at least the idea behind it was their wildest yet. They wanted to have an open-air screening in Athens on the site of the Knicks, which is an ancient forum where the Athenians invented a little thing called democracy. Wow! (laughs) So this was like a serious site of historical interest, right? These plans were, and this is a pun, nixed by the Greek government (laughs) after a public outcry over the film, which was understood to sanitize, Americanize, significantly alter the mythology. So the government were like, no, no, not with this movie. Not with this movie, you can't premiere it at the birthplace of democracy, you lunatics. Then when they saw the film, they must have gone, yeah, do you know what, we made the right call there. All of our preconceptions (laughs) about this film are absolutely true. Yes, I mean, the Greek historians, just general members of the public, were, were not happy with it. There was upset around even the idea of having him fight the Minotaur and the Cyclops, these monsters that were associated with other heroes. The idea that it was corrupting school children and, and giving them the wrong idea about these fake things that didn't happen <laughs> thousands of years ago. Meanwhile, five-year-old Sam is looking up the insane real Greek myths after watching this film and learning crazy things that he should not know about for at least another ten years after that. Absolutely, and genuinely, I think Probably that's the same for a lot of kids. I think this counter to what a lot of scholars might have thought would happen. This probably led to a lot of kids learning about this stuff for the first time. So anyway, instead, Disney had to settle for merely completely taking over Times Square and hosting an enormous parade through Manhattan that involved numerous Olympic athletes, as well as for some reason, Andy Garcia and Harvey Keitel. And businesses and residents were told to dim their lights as the parade passed. Just the general sentiment was one of utter disdain. I think this harmed the movie's prospects rather than helped them. And this was borne out in a relatively low box office take. It made 99 million domestic and 252 million worldwide, which falls short of Hunchback's total by about 75 million, so easily the lowest-grossing film since Rescuers Down Under. Right, so, yeah, even lower than Hunchback. That is a real blow, because Hunchback, you can imagine that not being a massively commercial movie, but Hercules and all the things it's playing into, and it's colourful, and it's bright, and it's a comedy, you would have thought that would be a, an easier sell to people, but it's definitely a sign that things aren't quite going the way they expect in this later half of the Disney renaissance. Well, it, yeah, it's been suggested that while Pocahontas and especially Hunchback's dip can be attributed to them taking themselves extremely seriously and maybe ignoring the child audience because they're after that acclaim, they're after that Oscar gold that they've had a taste of with Beauty and the Beast and the like. Instead, it's been suggested that Hercules maybe went too far in the other direction and didn't offer much to teens or adults, which are a big part of the audience for Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King. You know, it's a date movie. It's a, it's a movie for everybody. And this, maybe this is why I like it so much, is a movie for kids. And I was a kid, but if you weren't a kid, there's not loads to latch onto unless you're really into the comedy or really into what's going on visually here. 
So I think this is probably when it started to sink in that the drop-off after Lion King wasn't just a blip. It's unlikely they were ever going to hit those heights again, but now it's really starting to feel like the extraordinary success of the early 90s is in the rearview mirror, and the renaissance is kind of beginning to, to run its course. It's interesting, a lot of the things that you say there is kind of how I felt about this film coming to it now. So for me, I've got to be honest, this is a three star. For me, this is probably my least favourite since Rescuers Down Under, which again, we're talking about an incredible crop of films. We're talking about some all-time Disney bangers here. But for me, I found it a bit grating at times, if I'm honest, how every single moment was like pushing a gag every single moment was pushing a gag and at the same time the film wasn't really making me laugh the gags weren't hitting and so that's why i think i was waiting for more emotional involvement or then really being picked up by the songs or hades the stuff that really worked was like okay this is great but then there were stretches of the film where for me it kept pushing for laughs and laughs and laughs that then it wasn't eliciting from me and i was wanting those moments to give me a little bit more depth and maybe that would be really different if I saw this as a kid and was rolling in the aisles and I watched it alongside The Lion King and Aladdin and associated this in the realm of I don't know Timon and Pumbaa and the genie and all of that but I think for me what's so special about a lot of those films in the early part of the renaissance is that they are really funny but it's mixed with so much heart and adventure And in this one, I just didn't feel the mix. It did make me laugh at points. The stuff I really like about it, I think the music is incredible. And I like the energy of it. I like the colour of it. But I wish I liked the film more than I did. I feel like I've let you down. And I can see you looking sad on the other end of this call. So I'm sorry, Sam. But I've I've got to be honest, it's a three star for me. That's okay. I mean, look, I concede that... This is maybe the only Disney movie where I think my judgment is seriously compromised by the fact that I loved it so much as a kid. Or maybe Oliver and Company. I think they're the only two. And something else, obviously, that those two movies have in common is that they are both clear instances of Disney trying to inject modernity into their films, trying to inject a bit more comedy in their films, a bit more intertextuality in their films. And these are also things that really interest me academically, And I do think it makes for really kind of complex, intriguing texts that are so fun to pick apart and think about and analyse. And that is why I love Oliver and Company as an adult, in addition to the reasons why I loved it as a kid, because it is just this spectacular and at times almost spectacularly ill-advised or at least bizarre bricolage of of references and combinations of modernity and classicism and in different ways that's exactly what we have here as well so i do think it engages me on that intellectual level even though it is also extremely silly and i do like that disney are doing something different i think i've said before a huge amount of what i get from animation is just seeing things that I've never seen before. And this is hardly mind-blowing in the grand scheme of animation, but it's doing something visually that I haven't really seen before in Disney. What those critics mistook for cheapness is a stylized flatness that is embracing its status as a drawing for specific artistic purposes. And I, I appreciate that and I admire that. 
And of course, it's a big part of my career as a researcher, and it is a big part of the long road to Shrek. And yes, of course, the entire history of cinema is just one long build-up to Shrek. Everything that's that's ever happened on the face of the earth is part of paving the path towards that. Uh, I'm being slightly facetious here. Towards that <laughs> <laughs> iconic film. But this is a big one. There's a line to be drawn from Aladdin, Hercules, Emperor's New Groove, Shrek, where these films slowly but surely start to incorporate more of the conventions of my beloved Looney Tunes films into mainstream feature animation. So I appreciate it on that level as well. It's a four star for me. And your mileage is always going to vary on that because I am so influenced by how much I loved it as a kid. But I do think it's certainly better than Pocahontas. I I definitely couldn't see it as being the weakest since Rescue was down under. And I would put it above Hunchback as well. I understand if you prefer Hunchback to this, but I do think this is a clear win over Pocahontas, I'm afraid. Well, the real legacy of this film, it's not leading up to Shrek, it's leading up to Disneyversity. I will always be pleased that Hercules, in its own way, brought this podcast into existence, just as he did, in a sense, the Milky Way. Now then, it is time for Lasting Legacy, because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie. And in the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies, and more, there is a whole universe out there for each character. So, specifically in a Disney sense, obviously there's all kinds of Greek mythological stuff that you could dig into with Hercules, but in a Disney context... What is his lasting legacy? I think probably the most prominent one, and that people of my age will remember, will be, well, I think we've already mentioned it, the, the TV series, the Saturday morning cartoon series. Did you ever catch any of that? No, I didn't. In the way that the Lion King one seemed to be always on, and bits of the Little Mermaid one I used to see back in the day, I don't think I ever really watched the Hercules one. Oh, this was good. This was great for me because it was a bit more cartoony than a lot of Disney's other cartoons of this era. And it had like a huge cast of Greek gods. It really broadened out like the mythological side of things. It's set while Hercules is training with Phil. So he's still a teenager in this. And I don't really know why because you could have really easily set this after and just had him go off on more adventures with Phil and Meg. But I guess the high school setting did lend an extra fun quality to it. So he's he's mates with other mythological characters who go to this school. So he's mates with uh, Cassandra and Icarus, two characters I'm sure Ben's incredibly familiar with. Although actually, no, you will know Icarus because he's in he's in your favorite movie, Marvel's Eternals. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine this Icarus is like too cocky and overconfident, and every episode he gets his comeuppance because he's too overconfident. He flies too close to the sun in a metaphorical yeah, yeah. sense. This is a post flying too close to the sun, Icarus, so he's always looking a bit scorched, which is oh. quite funny. Uh, he's, he's got this like scorched veneer to him. He's got like sort of spiky singed hair. Um, he's like the nerd and Cassandra is like the goth girl and there's like Adonis who is the jock. You know Adonis, that's that's just a word that people say, right? Yeah, he's just a big like hulky hunking dude. Yeah, so this is fun, but it doesn't work canonically with the film, which is obviously upsetting to me, because during this period, Hades and Hercules aren't aware of each other's existence, but in this, Hades is is the villain and they're always coming into conflict. Their most notable conflict in the series is a crossover episode that they did with Aladdin, which blew my mind when I was a kid, and again, also, this is like, 
completely anachronistic. These movies are set thousands of years apart from one another. But for Disney, it's all, oh, this is just the past. So uh, Hades teams up with an undead Jafar who wakes up in the underworld after being defeated in in the return of Jafar to trick the heroes into, into fighting each other. That's pretty cool. That's like a fun way to bring those two worlds together. God, Jafar's dead and then he ends up in Hades' sphere. That's kind of cool. Yeah, there's something nice about that. And there is also a film, it's called Hercules Zero to Hero. Well, it's sort of a film. It's four episodes of the TV show which are spliced into a kind of Mamma Mia, here we go again situation (laughs) where Meg is looking through her husband's high school yearbook and it flashes back to what Hercules was up to in high school. He's really embarrassed about it, but it's okay in the end. I personally, as a connoisseur of the terrible Disney sequels, don't count this as core canon because it's almost all footage taken from the show. So I didn't watch it in full, but I have seen the episodes in the past. So when I make my big ranking of all the director video sequels at the end of this podcast, it will not be on there. I love that you consider there to be a canon of the director video sequels, and this doesn't even make that list. This is like a <laughs> sublist of a sublist. It's important because there's a few of these. There's like the Jungle Book, Jungle Cubs series was cut into a movie, and there's like a Buzz Lightyear of Star Command one that was cut into a movie. It's not the same as the Beauty and the Beast one, which was a TV series that never came out and they made the episodes that they had into a movie. That's fine, because that's the only way you can watch those. If you just edit in a TV series into a movie, that doesn't count. Anyway, let's not dwell. (laughs) So, we also have a few video games of note. Again, this I feel like this was an iconic video game. This is like my generation, i.e. two years younger than your generation's version of the Lion King Genesis game, which is the snappily titled Disney's Hercules colon action game. Oh, just straight up action game. Hey kids, yeah. you want an action game? Check out this guy. <laughs> this is an action game. And it was for the PlayStation 1, but it looks like a Sega Genesis game. It looks like it's from the previous generation. It's all like side-scrolling, platformy, beat-em-up stuff. And yeah, it's 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 pretty good. Uh, I did love it when I was a kid. It does not look like it was made for the PlayStation, but I did spend a lot of time on it. Do you defeat the Hydra? Is it a CGI 3D Hydra in this one? Yeah, and you get to fight bosses who are only like alluded to in the film. So you, you briefly see him fighting Medusa in Zero to Hero, but here that's a much bigger fight sequence. Yeah, so this is it's pretty good. It, like the show, it fleshes out the world of Hercules a little bit. And also in the world of video games, it is worth noting that I think Hercules appears more than any other character in Kingdom Hearts. Like, apart from Mickey, Donald, and Goofy, I think Hercules is in the most Kingdom Hearts games. He's in nearly every one because you can go to, like, the Colosseum and and, and fight loads of monsters and stuff, and it's like a training arena level. Disney's Kingdom Hearts action game. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So Kingdom Hearts, we say this all the time, it's a crossover between Disney and the worlds of Final Fantasy, and Hercules uh, gets to fight the iconic Cloud Strife from Final Fantasy VII. I mean, for you, as we've established, a big fan of deep lore, Kingdom Hearts (laughs) firmly fits into the realm of things that Sam Summers is largely obsessed with exceptionally deep lore and speaking of i also have to talk about another bit of last and legacy content that brings in so many disney characters that we could mention it in almost every episode but for hercules it needs a special mention which is descendants 
I definitely mentioned this on the Sleeping Beauty episode because the main villain of the first Descendants movie is Maleficent. And Descendants is set in a world in which all the Disney villains have been exiled to an island while their children are allowed to go to high school in the fairy tale kingdom run by Beauty and the Beast. And Ben, you haven't seen any of these? <laughs> no, I've not seen any of these. It sounds absolutely bonkers. So the main character of the trilogy of Descendants films, soon to be a quadrilogy, is Mal, who is Maleficent's daughter, who over the first two movies defeats her evil mother and falls in love with the Beast's son. So, so far, so good. So far, so nothing to do with Hercules. God, this is such a tangled web already, though. I don't like that these characters have kids who are then, like, getting with each other. Oh, it feels wrong. Well... In that case, buckle up for this, because in Descendants 3, we'll finally meet Hades, who is trying to escape from the villain island to get onto the the mainland, and Mal foils Hades' plan, but then it's revealed that he is her deadbeat dad, who walked out on her and Maleficent when Mal was a kid. Wait, my brain just, like, missed all of that information. I just couldn't couldn't take in what you were saying. Hades and Maleficent have a child. Oh, God. Okay. (laughs) Yep, you got that. Yeah, and that child is Mal. Mal. Who was in the other films, but we've only just found out that Hades is her dad. Yeah, so we've always known that Maleficent is her mum, but we only find out in the third one that Hades is her dad. Uh, And he he walked out on them when he was a kid, and there's this big centrepiece song of the movie. It's this incredible, like, 80s-style blues rock song pitched somewhere between, like, Springsteen and Huey Lewis, where (laughs) Hades explains to Mal his decision to leave her as a child, basically amounting to... Look, would you like to be married to Maleficent? <laughs> no. He could have made other choices in his own life. Wow. So did you say there's a fourth Descendants movie coming up? There's a fourth Descendants movie coming up. I think it's more of a spin-off. I'm not even sure if Mal is the main character in it, but there is a fourth one in which the Queen of Hearts is going to be the main villain, played by Rita Ora. Oh my god. God, this is too much to take in at the end of the episode. Maybe we'll have to do a Descendants spin-off episode I at some point. I think it's possible we might. Watch the trilogy. There's an animated sequel to Descendants 3, or like a special, called Descendants the Royal Wedding, where Hades attends the wedding of Mal and the Beast's son, who I think might be called Ben? I might be making that up, I haven't Googled it. <laughs> yes. Is it, does he look like a beast or does he look like No, he looks like prince? a handsome boy. Okay. Yeah, he looks like a kind of school jock kind of character. Yeah, honestly, they're all well worth a watch and we'll, I wouldn't be against a Descendants episode maybe when the fourth movie comes out. Okay, yeah, that's pretty much it for Hercules. There's the live-action movie, which, as I think we said, is going to be produced by the Russo brothers, directed by Aladdin's Guy Ritchie, and which will apparently be, quote, inspired by TikTok. What? I mean, considering Hercules is, like, extremely consciously 90s in his animated incarnation, I don't know, maybe it makes sense for them to go, like, hey, what's the big thing today? TikTok, hey, you're gonna, like, scroll through this movie in an endless feed for 90 minutes. It does make me feel a bit tired inside, though. I mean, I think it makes sense. If Hercules in the 90s is meant to be, like, the modern-day Michael Jordan then Hercules in the 2020s could be the ancient Greek version of Ben, you're going to have to help us out. Insert influencer name here. Yeah. (laughs) So what, he does like unboxing videos or whatever, lip syncs. I don't know TikTok. Like when he becomes a big deal, he starts everything by going, hey guys, 
Oh yeah, that's good. Yeah, hey guys, just gonna fight the Gorgon here. Hey guys, just gonna wrestle this Minotaur. If you want to see some more monster fighting content, like and subscribe. See you for the next episode. That's actually how we end our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he does a podcast now. Also, I would not be surprised if this ended up not being inspired by TikTok in any tangible way. I'm totally prepared for that to be the case as well, but that's what the producers have said. Oh, and we also found out just the other day that they are doing a Hercules musical. I think it's premiering in New Jersey. Yeah, and you know, I think it's been and gone. I think it premiered in like the middle of February and ended earlier in March, so it's done already, but oh. I think... Yeah, with a lot of these musicals. So Alan Menken came back and David Zippel doing what they do, which is like add new songs to the existing songs. But they, with these musicals, seem to, instead of bringing them straight to Broadway or straight to the West End, they trial them out in smaller theatres. Like Sam, you saw the world premiere of Bedknobs and Broomsticks, the musical in the Northeast. This is true. (laughs) This is true. Which somehow has not made its way to any other stages as far as I know. But yeah, they did a Hercules run i think in new jersey somewhere so that must be them trialing it out for a potential broadway run at some point but that's interesting to see if that ever becomes a a bigger deal i'm still waiting for the hunchback of notre dame musical that we spoke about last time that sounds so good i really hope they bring that back yeah i'd love to see that that seems like a key part of the life cycle of all of these films at this point that as well as the live action remake you get the theatrical adaptation too especially when they're properly musicals like these films they really lend themselves to that it's interesting that they seem to be going back to the 90s because you would think that they would be trying to do Moana and Encanto as soon as possible. I guess that really relies on Lin-Manuel Miranda having time to write the rest of the songs for those. But yeah, I'm, I'm here for it if they're going back to the 90s to bring some of these back on stage. Yeah, why does he write like he's running out of time? Writes day and night like he's running out of time. Uh, I guess we'll never know. And that is it for this week's class. Join us again for our next seminar as we volunteer for war and get down to business in China-set historical epic Mulan. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, like and subscribe, guys. Follow us for more monster-fighting content. And if you fancy dropping us a little review, Sam has agreed to channel his inner Hermes and deliver a package for you wherever you need it going to. There is no destination too far. He will go the distance. You like that? It's all right? Yeah, that was good. That was good. (laughs) He's smiling. Uh, For now, it's goodbye from Sam. See you later, guys. And it's goodbye from me. We're still friends. We did it. Hercules sucks. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's a good movie. Good movie. See you next time, people. Bye. University is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Music